Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. Today we're going to start off with a recipe from, actually we're going to go to Eating Well. <laughs> Just to catch up. Eatingwell.com. Creamy chicken noodle soup with rotisserie chicken. This creamy rotisserie chicken soup has a delicious chicken pot pie feel to it. We call for rotisserie chicken to streamline your prep time. Look for a nice big one with lots of breast meat on it. Pair this comforting and easy soup recipe with a green salad, or if you're really hungry, a grilled cheese sandwich. It takes about 30 minutes, and it serves eight. How we made creamy chicken noodle soup with rotisserie chicken healthy. Creamy soup and healthy don't often go hand in hand, but we managed to pull it off in this rotisserie chicken soup recipe without sacrificing flavor. Here's how. We bulked up on the veggies. Vegetables add flavor and color to a soup, but they also add vitamins and heart-healthy fiber. Our soup is packed with five cups of onions, carrots, celery, and peas, which adds tons of flavor and fiber, which can help you feel satisfied for longer. We use whole wheat noodles. Whole wheat noodles are a great choice in a soup like this one that's packed with flavors that complement their nutty taste while adding even more fiber to your meal. We cut back on saturated fat. Dietary Guidelines for Americans recommends limiting saturated fat intake to less than 10% of your daily calories. We keep saturated fat in check by skipping the heavy cream that typically gives creamy soup its silky texture and opted for whole milk instead. We still use butter to cook the veggies in our soup, but we combine it with olive oil in unsaturated fat that may help keep our hearts healthy. We slash sodium. Rotisserie chicken is convenient and delicious to use in soup, but it can be high in sodium. The Dietary Guidelines for Americans recommend that adults get no more than 2,300 milligrams of sodium per day, the equivalent of one teaspoon of salt. To keep sodium in check, we called for unsalted chicken broth and use a moderate amount of kosher salt in our soup. Here's the ingredients. Two tablespoons of unsalted butter, one tablespoon olive, oil, two cups of chopped yellow onion from one large onion, one cup of chopped carrots from two medium carrots, one cup of, cup of chopped celery from two large stalks of celery, one and three quarters teaspoons of kosher salt, three tablespoons of all-purpose flour, four cups of unsalted chicken stock, two cups of whole milk, four ounces of uncooked whole wheat egg noodles, and three cups of coarsely chopped rotisserie chicken breast from two rotisserie chickens. One cup of frozen green peas. Here's the directions. First, you're gonna melt butter with the olive oil in a large Dutch oven over medium-high heat. Add onions, carrots, celery, and salt, and cook, stirring often, until vegetables are slightly softened, about six to eight minutes. Add flour and stir to coat, Stir in broth and milk and let mixture come to a boil. Add uncooked noodles to the boiling mixture. Cover and cook until noodles are al dente about eight minutes. Stir in chicken and peas and cook until pasta reaches desired doneness and chicken and peas are warmed through about one to two more minutes. 
and then serve immediately. As far as the nutrition facts, serving size is about one and a quarter cups and it's 258 calories per serving. Next we're going to go to kind of a fun recipe for fish tacos, which I really like. This is a guest post on Smitten Kitchen, so not Deb, but in honor of her in her vacation to Playa del Carmen, she wanted to share this recipe I learned from friends that live there for fish tacos. My first trip down there was with my BFF Victoria and about 10 guy friends. I highly recommend this arrangement. The boys would scuba dive and spearfish while we sunbathed, and then the boys would bring up their catch of the day to the Mexicans at a beachfront cabana cookout place. They would turn the catch of the day into the best fish tacos I have ever had. So I made them teach me how. In a large pan or wok, throw together some white fish. I use tilapia, some fresh cilantro, a small amount of oil. I use coconut oil chopped onion and chopped red bell or poblano pepper and squeeze fresh lime juice all over and simmer for approximately 15 minutes. I usually flip the fish often and let it break up into small pieces. When you are done, scoop onto a flour tortilla and add toppings. You can use whatever kind of cheese is your favorite. I use the sharpest cheddar that I can find, fat-free sour cream, fresh chopped cilantro, Santa Barbara mango and peach salsa, and mixed greens. Wrap up and enjoy. That's kind of fun little side dish there. Um, to go with the earlier dish with the chicken and the noodles, I think a little Italian bread is in order. Here's a recipe from Smitten Kitchen. A few weeks ago, in my ninth entry into my bread category, I expressed my desire to take this whole yeast, flour, water, ta-da thing a step further and begged for some cookbook guidance. At the end of it, with almost equal votes for Rose Levy, Baronbaum's Bread Bible, I would call it Bible bread, but Bread Bible works, and Peter Reinhardt's Bread Maker's Apprentice, I was still torn, changing my mind back and forth until the final seconds of my order, eventually settling on the latter. On the day it arrived, I tore into it, certain that something would jump right off the page, and I'd be up to my elbows and flour once again that night. Instead, the opposite happened. I froze with terror. Bigas and pulishes and, oh my God, all of these steps. And seriously, are there any breads you can make in just a few hours? And really, it was very humbling. And just like that, my fairy godmother of cookbooks found a way to deposit Baron Baum's tome on my front step, equally intimidating. I was certain that I was completely over my head. Silly to think that taking something one step further wouldn't be such an involved process. What did I think it would be? One, two, three, and then your polaine? Fast forward to this past Saturday night when my husband had to go into work for just a half hour for some emergency testing, blah, blah. Yes, I asked what her name was before we went out, but of course something went wrong and he was stuck there for hours and there I was on the sofa watching a two-hour E. True Hollywood story about Jessica and Ashley Simpson. It was utterly fascinating. I have no shame admitting that I learned a lot. Fine, okay, a little shame, but not as much as I should. Yet, on a table across the room, my 1,000-bound pages of bread instructions sat sneering at me, and I knew they had my number. I have time to stuff my head with minutiae as the fact that Ashley is a trained ballerina and Jessica was originally a Christian singer, but not time to try a pre-ferment? 
Busted, indeed. So, at 10 p.m., yes, after the ETHS was over, I made my first biga, which is the Italian version of a homemade starter that precisely resembles in ingredients and form an actual bread dough and is treated similarly. You mix, knead, rise, and deflate it, and then rest it in the fridge overnight or up to three days or in the freezer for a couple of months, and when you want to use it, you bring it to room temperature, break it into pieces, and mix it into your bread dough. Ooh, scary. Well, alas, it was no trouble at all. Sunday afternoon, I mixed it into the components for Italian bread, kneaded, let it rise, deflated, formed into batards, let it rise again, slashed the loaves, filled a pan with water, and baked the breads for about 20 minutes before they were ready to go. Yes, those are a lot of steps, and yes, this is a bread for those of you who really want to get involved in such things, but it is simply not something a beginner can't do. Reinhardt's instructions are simple, logical, and they do lead to a tasty loaf. Italian bread, eh? Well, this would be a good time to point out that I have rarely, if ever, in my life had proper Italian bread. I tend to come across mostly Americanized versions, sort of shortened French baguettes with hard crusts and a salt-leaning flavor. This apparently authentic version has a firm, soft crust, a fairly neutral flavor, and a sturdy but moist texture. It wasn't exactly what I had expected, but it was delicious, and I think it had a lot to do with that extra fermentation. Like wine, cheese, and my dashing good looks, haha, <laughs> bread dough improves with age. We dipped pieces in olive oil, sprinkled them with sea salt, and ate the bread alongside fresh basil-flecked fettuccine with a ton of wild mushrooms and later a strawberry rhubarb crumble. Yum! But all I'm getting into today is the bread because Rome was on and I didn't take pictures or write down measurements, not because I'm trying to be a tease. Anyway, I vow to be less intimidated by these books and in my pipe dream, the one in which my life flows along a predictable schedule like a well-oiled machine, I vow to try a new bread every week. Yet, in real life, the one facing the realities of three glasses of wine with dinner and deadlines, oh, the deadlines, I've got enough leftover bread to last us weeks as I ponder my next move. So, for Bika, the bread baker's apprentice, Peter Reinhardt, where the, book, where the recipe came from, uh, Reinhardt says that in Italy, nearly every pre-ferment, including wild yeast or sourdough, is called a biga. So if you are making a recipe from another source that calls for biga, and it's spelled B-I-G-A, make sure you check to see exactly what kind of biga it requires. You can substitute all-purpose flour for the bread flour if you prefer, or blend all-purpose and bread flour. Biga will keep in the refrigerator for up to three days or in the freezer for about three months. You can use it as soon as it ferments, but I prefer to give it an overnight retarding to bring out more flavor. This makes about 18 ounces. You'll need two and a half cups of unbleached bread flour, one half teaspoon of instant yeast, three quarters cup plus two tablespoons to one cup of water at room temperature. Stir together the flour and yeast in a four-quart bowl or in the bowl of an electric mixer. Add three-quarters cup plus two tablespoons of the water, stirring until everything comes together and makes a coarse ball. 
or you can mix on low speed for one minute with a paddle attachment. Adjust the flour or water according to need so that the dough is neither too sticky nor too stiff. It is better to err on the sticky side as you can adjust easier during the kneading and it is harder to add water once the dough firms up. Sprinkle some flour on the counter and transfer the dough to the counter. Knead for four to six minutes or mix on medium speed with the dough hook for four minutes or until the dough is soft and pliable, tacky but not sticky. The internal temperature should be 77 to 81 degrees Fahrenheit. You're going to lightly oil a bowl and transfer the dough to the bowl, rolling it around to coat it with oil, and then cover the bowl with plastic wrap and ferment at room temperature for two to four hours until it nearly doubles in size. Remove the dough from the bowl, knead it lightly to Degas, degas, if that's what it says, D-E-G-A-S, and return it to the bowl, covering the bowl with plastic wrap. Place the bowl in the refrigerator overnight, and then you can keep this in the refrigerator for up to three days, or again, freeze it in an airtight plastic bag for up to three months. So here's the recipe for Italian bread from Peter Reinhardt's The Bread Baker's Apprentice. This is a lot of prep. You can see we're just getting to the bread recipe. So Reinhardt says that the use of diastatic barley malt powder produces better color because it will accelerate the enzyme activity and thus promote sugar breakout from the starch. You can also use non-diastatic barley malt syrup, which will contribute flavor more than color, or make this bread without any malt since there are some malt, there's some malt already added to most brands of bread flour. The pre-ferment will contribute some enzymes of its own, and both powder and syrup can be purchased through King Arthur flour. This makes two one-pound loaves. You'll need three and a half cups of your, the biga that you made earlier, two and a half cups of unbleached bread flour, one and two-thirds two teaspoon salt, that's one and two-thirds teaspoon salt, one tablespoon of sugar, one teaspoon of instant yeast, one teaspoon of diastatic barley malt powder, this is optional, one tablespoon of olive oil, vegetable oil, or shortening, three quarters cups to three quarter cup plus two tablespoons of water of lukewarm, about 90 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and semolina flour or cornmeal for dusting. Remove the biga from the refrigerator one hour before making the dough and then cut it into about 10 small pieces with a pastry scraper or serrated knife. Cover with a towel or plastic wrap and let sit for one hour to take off the chill. Stir together the flour, salt, sugar, yeast, and malt powder in a four-quart bowl or in the bowl of an electric mixer. Add the biga pieces, olive oil, and three-quarters cups of water and stir together or mix on low speed with a paddle attachment until the ball forms, adjusting the water or flour according to need. The dough should be slightly sticky and soft, but not batter-like or very sticky. If the dough feels tough and stiff, add more water to soften it. It's better to have the dough too soft than too stiff at this point. Then you're gonna sprinkle flour on the counter and transfer the dough to the counter and begin kneading or mixing on medium speed with the dough hook. Knead or mix for about 10 minutes, adding flour as needed until the dough is tacky, 
but not sticky and supple. The dough should register at 77 to 81 degrees Fahrenheit. Then you're going to lightly oil a large bowl and transfer the dough to the bowl, rolling it to coat with the oil, sound familiar, and then cover the bowl with plastic wrap. Ferment at room temperature for approximately two hours or until the dough doubles in size. Gently divide the dough into two equal pieces of about 18 ounces each. Carefully form the pieces into batards, instructions below, degassing the dough as little as possible, and then lightly dust with a sprinkle of flour, cover with a towel or plastic wrap, and let rest for five minutes. Then complete the shaping, extending the loaves to about 12 inches in length, line a sheet pan with baking parchment and dust with semolina flour or cornmeal, place the loaves on the pan and lightly mist with spray oil, and then cover loosely with plastic wrap. Proof at room temperature for about one hour or until the loaves have grown to about uh, one and a half times their original size. Preheat the oven to 500 degrees Fahrenheit. Having an empty heavy duty um, sheet pan or a cast iron frying pan on top on the top shelf or the oven floor and then score the breads with two parallel diagonal slashes or one long slash. For loaves, generously dust or peel the back of a baking sheet with semolina flour or cornmeal and very gently transfer the loaves to the peel or pan. Transfer the dough to the baking stone or bake on a, the sheet pan and pour one cup of hot water into the steam pan and close the door. After 30 seconds, spray the walls of the oven with water, then close the door. Repeat once more after another 30 seconds. After the final spray, lowering the oven temperature, oven temperature setting to 450 degrees or 400 degrees Fahrenheit, and bake until done, rotating 180 degrees if necessary for even baking. It should take about 20 minutes for loaves, and the loaves should be golden brown and register at least 200 degrees Fahrenheit at the center. Transfer the loaves to a cooling rack and cool for at least one hour before slicing or serving. And if you prefer a crustier loaf, you, that's when you can lower the temperature up, um, of the oven to 400 degrees after the steaming and increase the baking time just a little bit. This will thicken the crust and give it more crunch. So to form a batard or torpedo, uh, a batard literally means bastard. It's a torpedo shaped loaf six to 12 inches in length. Gently pat the dough onto a rough rectangle and then without degassing the piece of dough, fold the bottom third of the dough letter style up to the center and press to seal, increasing surface tension on the outer edge. Fold the remaining dough over the top and use the edge of your hand to seal the seam closed and to increase the surface tension all over. Set the batards aside either for proofing or to rest for further shaping. You know, when I found that recipe, I thought, oh, bread, nice, simple recipe, <laughs> just to go with so many of the lovely dinners here. But that is quite an adventure to do. I have not made bread like that ever before. And I don't know, maybe someday I'll give it a try. Next, we've got a recipe for castle breakfast. This also from Smitten Kitchen. 
Every Saturday morning, which is blissfully later each year that my children have grown old enough to fend for themselves for a couple hours, we stumble out of bed and do these exact things in this exact order. We make Americanos in the mocha pot, hard boil several eggs, and plunge them in very ice water so they're not warm centered by the time we sit down. And then I mix up a simple whole grain soda bread, but bake it as scones as it can be done in 15 minutes. We use these minutes to pull out all the fruit left in the fridge and cut it up. Fanning it out on a platter makes us feel fancy and not like it's the dregs that were left at the bottom of the produce door, drawer. But and if we're feeling ambitious, we juice a couple of oranges. If we have grapefruits, I loosen the sections of a few. I'm team grapefruit knife, not spoon, not that you've asked. I've been known to slice up pears and blue cheese with walnuts when the craving hits in the winter and or apples with sharp cheddar in the fall. In the summer, it's an abundance of berries or stone fruit or melon, sometimes with homemade ricotta if I have it. If we have avocados, I like to slice them. Then we nudge the kids to set the table, which always includes salted butter and apricot jam, my favorite. And because I do not have any argument left in me by Saturday, Nutella and raspberry jam, that's everyone else's favorite. We call it castle breakfast, as we started this weekend ritual a few years ago when we stayed at a couple of castles turned hotels in Ireland. I love fancy hotel breakfasts, the teapots and civility, the sunny rooms, little jars of jam, the fresh fruit, so ideal for grazers like me. And I realized I wanted this very much to be part of every weekend, something to look forward to after the cold cereal and rush mornings during the week but only if I could do it in like 30 minutes tops. I'm neither a domestic goddess nor a morning person, although I bet they often come in the same package. So when we came back from Ireland, I began my soda bread studies and I could go on and on, but suffice it to say that some are darker, some are lighter, some are poured into loaf pans, some are baked as boule or rounds, and I love them all. But when it came to my weekend breakfast, the simplicity of the traditional formula, we learned taking a class at Ballymolo Cooking School best suited my needs. It's just flour, baking soda, salt, and buttermilk. I swap half the white flour with coarse wholemeal, whole wheat flour. More about this in a moment. I like that we're getting a dose of whole grains in the morning and I don't need it to be sweet since they're gonna slather it with sweet stuff regardless. It's also absolutely perfect with a pat of salted butter. We do not make these in advance. They are fine the next day, I guess, if rewarmed, but they're best right out of the oven. So why deny ourselves? If we're not making brown bread scones, I'm making pancakes, crepes, Dutch babies, or one of the two recipes I owe you, popovers, or a new waffle. This is because castle breakfast isn't as much a recipe as it's a philosophy. It's about making days off feel special, about feeling as calm and doted on at home as you would in a fancy tea room. It's about feeling a tiny bit like royalty, regardless of budget. I hope it feels good. Here's a few things. Ukraine. I do not need to tell you how devastating the news is out of Ukraine right now. I'm forever inspired by the work of World Central Kitchen, who gets on the ground as soon as possible, and when there are humanitarian or environmental catastrophes anywhere in the world, they set up mobile kitchens and make sure people get hot meals, which we all understand the essentialness of. 
They've been on the ground at different border points, feeding those fleeing Ukraine for the last week, and I wish it wasn't necessary, but I'm proud to support their work. They also have a Charity Navigator rating of 100. I set up fundraisers last weekend through the Smitten Kitchen Facebook and Instagram pages, hoping we might raise 5000 but I magnificently underestimated the kindness and generosity of the Smitten Kitchen readers. We currently raised a combined $343,000, and I'm humbled and overwhelmed watching this climb. These Smitten Kitchen fundraisers run for another three weeks. Hope that's still on there at Smitten Kitchen at Facebook and Smitten Kitchen Instagram. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.